are under grace. Now, just very quickly, the law to Paul represented really two things. Number one, it represents the Old Testament law. Everything in the Old Testament, all the rules and regulations and all of that. But the law doesn't just represent what's in the Old Testament. It represents really any religious structure, any type of religious rules and laws that people would put on you and say, if you don't obey these things, you cannot be made righteous before God. So yes, it's the Old Testament, but it really goes to any religious rules that people would put on you to require righteousness. Now, as we said last week, Paul makes a statement here that being under the law doesn't create chaos. I'm, I'm sorry, not being under the law. And we said, remember, laws are good. Rules are good. They bring structure and order to our families, to our businesses, to our uh, churches, to our society in general. So there's nothing wrong with laws and rules. But Paul is saying not being under the law actually creates order. It actually creates true righteousness. It doesn't create chaos or, or anything like that. Now, as I said last week, that kind of goes against the grain, right? We, we tend to think the more rules you have, the more order you're going to have. But Paul says, no, you don't really need that. And so he has to kind of, he has to explain that. And he did in Romans 7, 4. This is his explanation. He says, likewise, my brothers and sisters, you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another in order that we might bear fruit from God. So this is the picture that we use. This is Paul's explanation. You've been brought from out from under the law. You've been set free from that for the purpose of being united with Jesus Christ. And Jesus in you and you in Jesus, that changes everything. That changes everything. Now we are under a completely different ownership, a completely different authority, which produces a completely different behavior. Now, as we said last week in verse 6, Paul brought us to the precipice of something new. You're not under the law. You're under something in verse 6 that he calls the new way of the Spirit. Now, as I said last week, Paul really won't get to that till chapter 8, um, but he's just introducing it uh, in verse 6. Now, we'll pick up right here. Now, we need to understand how radical this teaching was when Paul brought it up. It's still radical today. In fact, I say it all the time. Go look at any other religion, any other religion, and they all say you got to do these things to be saved. Christianity is the only one that says you can't do anything. You have to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That, Henry and I were texting the other day, and, and we were just saying how beautiful that is. That's not man-made. No man's going to ever come up with some, that kind of a plan. So we need to understand how radical uh, this was. Now, I say it was radical because you got to understand, at the time Paul writes the book of Romans, the law of God was revered by the Jews. It, it's not just looked up to, it's not just loved, it's not just admired, but it is absolutely revered. In fact, the Jews thought, this is why we're different, this is why we're saved, this is why we're right with God, because we have this thing called the law that God had given them. And of course, they love the law. And you see that in Psalms 19, Psalms 119. We love the law. The law is perfect. All of these types of things. And Paul comes along and he comes along with verses like this. Romans 3.20. He says, no, by the works of the law, won't anybody be justified in his sight? And he even goes further than that. If that wasn't enough to make them mad, 
He goes even further and says this, the law came in to increase sin. Now, no wonder they wanted to kill him. No wonder they stoned him. No wonder they wanted to kill him, and, and eventually they, they did kill him for making statements like, like that. Now listen, the Old Testament clearly teaches that the law is good. The law is perfect. The law is all of those things. And it sounds like Paul is saying the law is bad, but that's not what Paul is saying at all. In fact, in verse 7, Paul says this, What do we say to all this, that the law is sin? No. God forbid, by no means. He's not saying... In fact, his most powerful statement is in verse 12. Listen to what he says. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So Paul's not saying at all that it's bad. Now, I'm going to read all the verses, which is unusual. I don't normally do that, but I want you to listen to his defense of God's law. Then we'll come back and we'll ask and answer four questions about these verses. These are what our verses tonight. Paul says this, What shall we say then, that the law is sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Now, that's a mouthful. We're going to go through and talk about some of this. I'm going to ask and answer four questions. Number one, why does Paul say the law is good? Paul says the law is good because without the law, I wouldn't know sin. Okay. Now, the first thing we infer from this is that it is a good thing to know your sin. Okay, let me say that again. It is a good thing to know your condition before God, how sinful it is. In Luke chapter 5, there's a story about Matthew the tax collector. And of course, Matthew, uh, before he uh, renamed to Matthew, he was Levi. And uh, he invites Jesus over to his house to have dinner. And of course, Levi is a tax collector. Nobody of any kind of reputation would ever hang out with the guy. So all he knows is other tax collectors and prostitutes and just all of this rabble, right? And so he invites Jesus and Jesus goes to his house. Well, all the religious people, the scribes and the Pharisees, they saw it. And they made a big stink about it and they complained against his disciples. And they asked him, why does he do that? Why, why do you eat and drink with sinners? And this is Jesus' response. He said this, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but only those who are sick. Now listen to me. Jesus is not at all saying that the people in Levi's house were sinners and the scribes and Pharisees were well. See, Jesus is the one who looked at the scribes and Pharisees and says, You're a bunch of whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you're nice and pretty, but on the inside, you're full of rot and decay and dead men's bones. Jesus is the one that called them a brood of vipers. 
See, he, he understood very well that they were sick. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is it's only those who realize they're sick need a physician. You see, it's only when you know you're sick that you go to the doctor. And it's only when you know you're a sinner that you'll ever seek a Savior. So it's a good thing to know your sin. Listen to me. This is what the law does. It shows us that we have a sickness called sin. That's, the, that's what the law does. Now, Paul wants to explain how the law does this. So what he does, he takes the very last of the Ten Commandments and he uses it for an illustration. And that is the, the you shall not covet. By the way, I was going to just move on through this, but I got to thinking, you know, somebody here may not know what that even means. That's kind of a, a Bible word. We don't go around, I don't know, has anybody used the word covet in conversation in the last two weeks? Probably not, right? It's not a word we use a lot. Covet means to want what somebody else has. Won't, it's, it has to do with envy. By the way, the Bible says that covetousness is as the sin of idolatry. Why? Because when you want something somebody else has, what you're saying is, I'm not satisfied with what you gave me, God. It's ungrateful. It's unthankful. It's, it's, not, it's being not content with what God has given you, all the blessings. You always want what somebody else has. By the way, it's probably the only one of the Ten Commandments too, you know, from keeping the Sabbath to murdering and stealing, that's completely on the inside. Nobody can ever see it. You could covet all day long and I'd never know it. Okay, so that he takes that particular commandment and he uses it for an illustration. Let me read those verses again. Paul says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me covetousness. Now, does Paul, let me answer a question, then I'm going to explain what he means. Does Paul mean that before the law says you shall not covet, that there was no covetousness in my heart? Does he mean that before the law points something out that it didn't exist? Well, that's not what he means at all. In fact, back in Romans 5, Paul said this, sin in, was indeed in the world before the law was given. So see, sin, what he means is that covetousness was down inside of me. It was, it was already there. It was active. It was working. But I didn't recognize it until the law said, don't do it. Does that make sense? It was always there, but it was imperceptible as sin. I didn't recognize it. Now, I want to give you an example. I don't know if y'all can see that. Let me tell you a little story. Back in 1998 or 99, I can't remember the exact date, uh, but it was one of those two years, I had a meeting in, uh, in Minneapolis. So I took uh, Kathy and the boys and we flew up to Minneapolis. And after we got done with the meeting, we rented a car and we drove to, uh, we were driving to Rapid City, South Dakota. Uh, they're going to go to Mount Rushmore, and after that, we're going to go to Yellowstone. So we get in this car, and we drive all the way across Minnesota, and we drive all the way across South Dakota, and then we come into Montana, and there it was. <laughs> the most beautiful sign I've probably ever seen in my life. It said the speed limit was reasonable and prudent. That is an, <laughs> I ain't making this up. That is the actual picture of the sign. It said speed limit. Reasonable and prudent. Now, well, you know what I did, right? Well, <laughs> let's go. So I pushed that thing up to about 90. 
And, of course, I'm doing 90 and people are just going right by me, you know. So I'm driving 90, and guys, I'm going to tell y'all, some of y'all never experienced this. I'm not saying y'all hadn't been 90, because I'm sure all of y'all have done that. That's not the point. I'm going 90, and I was completely free. I'm not going around a curb looking for that blue light. I'm not wondering, is he hid behind that tree? I'm not feeling any guilt. I'm as, I'm as free as a bird. I am going 90 miles an hour, and I, I, I've, I've got license to do so. Everybody with me? I mean, it was unbelievable. This is awesome. Now, let's fast forward a few years. 2003, 2004, I had to go back to Montana. And boy, I'm looking forward to it because I'm reasonable and prudent again, right? So I, uh, I think I fly into Helena and I, I rent a car and I got to drive somewhere and I get on that interstate and buddy, here I go, 90 miles an hour. I'm cruising down that. I'm feeling free. I'm feeling great. This is awesome. And I go about five miles, and there it is. Speed limit, 65. Do you understand that sign changed everything? Changed everything. All of a sudden, I, I'm, I'm looking for, where is he? You know, I know he's around here somewhere, and I'm feeling guilty. I, I'm speeding. Now, here's the thing. I'd been speeding for five miles, but I didn't know it. And by the way, if they had pulled me over, they would have wrote me a ticket because I was speeding. It was, I was always speeding. But it wasn't until the sign said, don't speed, that it actually hit me as, are you with me? Is that making sense? And by the way, when I saw that sign, now I got a choice to make. It just changes everything. Now I'm like, okay, now what do I do? Do I go 65? Well, if you've been going 90 and you go 65, it's like Fred Flintstone with a little leg thing, man. It's like, am I even, am I even moving here, right? Or I could just throw it up to 90 and say, you know what? I don't care what that sign says. I, if they're going to pull me over, pull me over. Or I could do what most of you do is you just fudge it just a little bit and, you know, try to stay. But and then I'm wondering, well, I wonder what the tolerance here is in Montana, right? I know in Florida it's about this. But see, it's all churning up inside of me. My brain's running 100. I'm not free anymore. I'm not free anymore. Folks, that's exactly what the law does for you and me. It's exactly what the law. You can go through life and you're just doing stuff left and right and not even thinking about it. And then one day God's word says, that's wrong. That's wrong. And that changes everything. See, what God's law does is it comes up and it says that your desires, what you want to do, is not the judge of what's right and wrong. Your desires are not the, the measure of what's good and bad or true and false. There is a, the law comes in and says, there's an authority above you and over you and outside of you that is your judge and jury. And that is God and His revealed will. And that changes absolutely everything. Let me tell you, that is why by nature we are hostile to God. Because we don't want that. Who wants that, right? I mean, come on. Wasn't it great when it was reasonable and prudent and there was no, no threat of any police officers pulling you over? I was free. Just leave me alone. Let me be free. We want to be our own God. And the law comes in and says, no, no, you can't do that. That's not right. That's wrong. There's a standard and authority called the, the word of God the, uh, that is above you. See, we come into the world just assuming. I, I love to watch children. Um, you know, I've got two granddaughters now, and I've just enjoyed so much just watching them 
grow up, and I, I've said it before, they're probably the two greatest human beings born on this planet since John the Baptist, except the third one that's on the way. They ought to add another one to that. But let me tell you, get around them and watch them, and they come in the world thinking they ought to get their own way. And they have to be taught that there's another law, namely it's called the parental law, that is over them and above them. But that doesn't change as we get older. You see, as we get older, as long as we stay in the flesh, we still hate that. We, we chafe against that. We don't want that authority around us. We don't want somebody trying to tell us what it is we have to do, and we absolutely detest that. One of the things that's fascinated me to watch over the last few years, have you noticed how homosexuals and others like them have fought so hard to be validated in their sin? Have you noticed that? You know, it started out, they just wanted civil unions, and they got that. And now they wanted to be married like everybody else, and they got that. And now they want to adopt children, and they've got that. And now they're going to want to get rid of anybody and anything that says what you're doing is wrong. Why do you think they want to do that? Because let me tell you, they're trying to get rid of the speed limit sign. They're trying to get rid of the speed limit sign from every aspect. They don't want to see it in the churches. They don't want to see it in the laws. They don't want to see it in the schools. They don't want to see it in the government because that speed limit sign says what you're doing is an abomination before God. And the guilt and the condemnation gnaws at them. And they think, if I can just get rid of those signs, if I can just get rid of them church people and them Jesus people telling me that this is wrong, then maybe I'll finally be free again. But they won't, by the way, because there's this law written on the inside called the moral law. It's called a conscience. And even if you could get rid of everything, see, you already know it's wrong. And now you've got to live with that the rest of your life. Number two, what happens when you and I come face to face with the law? Romans 7.10, Paul said this, The commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Now think about this. You remember my example from last week, the, the, uh, the pavement lines up at Ace? Y'all remember that? They repaved the driveway, and on one side they had finished the lines, and everybody was parked, excuse me, really nice and neatly, and then... The other side of the parking lot was just mass chaos. See, we understand order helps us. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. And, and this law comes along and says, don't do that. Do this. This is the will of God. This is not the will of God. It tells you all these things. It should help us be better people. It should help us live better lives and, and have a better society and be a better person. But it doesn't. In fact, look what Paul says. It, it, it promises life. You, you think there's all these good things, but it, end up, it ended up killing me. Now, why, why is that? How does that happen? Well, let's go back to the speed limit sign. Look at Romans 7, 11. It says, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. You see, when you see the law, when I saw that 65-mile-an-hour sign, all of a sudden I had choices. Before, I'm just free, man. I'm just cruising, but now I've got choices. And that's what the law does. When the law comes up against your sin, you've got a choice to make. You've got choices to make. And the law, and what happens, sin will deceive you. It deceives you in two ways. I'm going I'm to show you both of them. And they're going to sound different, but they're really the same thing. And I'll show you what I mean. At, at the root, they, they accomplish the same thing. The first way that sin deceives us when we see the law it's what I call self-indulgence or, 
or, or you might call it the you can. In other words, this is what it says. Sin says to you, man, you can't do that. You can't keep all those commandments. And let's face it, that's just not you, man. Even if you could try to do that, you don't even want to do it. There's probably no God out there. There's no, listen, like on that road that day, there's probably no cop around the corner. What's the odds? It's Montana. Just put the foot to the pedal and go. Don't worry about it. Just live your life, man. You know, live your truth. Be yourself. Do all those things that they tell you to do. Just go ahead and, and get as much out of life as you possibly can. Just ignore that. That's called self-indulgence. Let's just let self be the God of your life. The second deception that sin brings is called self-righteousness. And I call this the you can't. Or, I'm sorry, you can <laughs> And that is this, sin will come up and when we see the law, sin says, you know what, you can do it. You can do it. You can obey those rules. You're just as good as anybody else. You're just as good as any of them church people. You know all of them. You've seen them places. You know they ain't perfect. You, you, you can easily do it. Just, just use your discipline. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Man, use your, use your willpower. You're just as good as any of them people are. You can do it. And see, here's the thing. Sin doesn't care which one of those you choose. Because the end is the same. Both of them lead you away from the righteousness that's found in Jesus Christ. Both of them will lead you away from the righteousness that's found inside of G in Jesus Christ alone. So whether you're trying to keep the law completely, or whether you're trying to give it up totally, or whether you're trying to find this kind of middle ground somewhere, sin doesn't care. As long as you don't fall on the mercy of, of God. As long as you're not that, that man that comes into the temple and beats his chest and says, have mercy on me, a sinner. As long as you're not that guy, sin doesn't care which one of those options that you choose. As long as it can keep you distracted from putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Number three. So what is the purpose of the law? We've already seen what law does. It shows us the sickness that's inside of us. So what is its purpose? Um... Romans 7, 13, let's read this. Paul says this, Did that which is good bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. So we've already talked about that. That's what, uh, that's what the law does. It shows us the sin that's inside of us. But if it just stopped there, what's the point? Right? If it just stopped there, remember what we said a couple weeks ago or maybe it was last week, the law is like an x-ray machine. It can show you the problem, but it has no remedial or healing power. It has no, no power to heal you at all, but it can show you the problem. So what's the point of the law? If it just stopped there and it didn't do anything to help you, it wouldn't make much sense. Paul says this is the purpose of the law. Galatians 3, 24 to 25. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. You see, the law was our teacher. It was given to us to prove to us that you can't keep that law. I don't care how hard you try and how hard you work. Because remember what Paul says. If you, if you decide to choose works as your way of righteousness, then you've got to keep the whole law. Not 90%, not 99%, not 99.9. You've got to keep every single, and if you break one commandment, you've broken the whole law. So that's what its whole purpose is to show us you can't do it. 
You cannot be righteous on your own. You can't work hard enough. You can't do any of that. So the whole point of the law is as a tutor or a teacher is to bring us to Jesus Christ. That's his purpose, is to lead us to, the, uh, to, to faith in Christ. Number four, and this will be the final one. Is there a law that Christians are to obey? Okay. Now, Paul said, he's, as I said before, he's led us to this, this precipice of a new way of life. Okay, it's called the new way of the Spirit. But then he just went right past it and started talking about the, the law again. And as I said, we're going to cover this more when we get to Romans chapter 8. I might just get Henry up here. He might better practice and he can just start. Can't you? You've got it all memorized, right, Pastor? Of course he does. That's exactly right. Listen, I've said often, I'm looking forward to Romans 8. You, you may have heard me say this. You put me on a desert island, you give me one book, I choose the Bible. You say, I can give one book out of the Bible, I choose Romans. If you say, I can have one chapter out of Romans, I choose Romans 8. What a chapter. There's nothing like it to me anywhere else in the Bible. We still got a week or so before we get to that. And when we get that, we're going to really, Paul's going to open up this new way of life that we're living. But let me just give you a preview tonight and tell you that, yes, there is a law for Christians. It is a law that directs us and it is a law that guides us in this new way of living called life in the Spirit. Let me read Romans 8, 2 through 4. Paul will say this, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. Now this is an amazing statement because Paul says, Now there's this new way of living that actually allows you for the very first time to fulfill the law. To fulfill the law. Now, what does that mean? What is this, what is this righteous requirement of the law? Well, I'm going to let Jesus and Paul uh, answer this question. In Matthew 22, a lawyer comes to Jesus, and you all, I'm sure, are familiar with this. And he asked him a question. He said, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then without being asked, Jesus just says this. That's the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the whole law. Now that is incredible. I mean, think about the Old Testament from Genesis all the way to Malachi. I mean, all the prophets and all the, and all the everything. And Paul, Paul, uh, Jesus said it all hangs on two commandments. Love the Lord, love your neighbor. And what do those two things have in common? Love. It's love. You see, love has always been what the law wanted. Law, I mean, it's always been that way. That is the righteous requirement of the law. That's what the law has always been trying to get us to. You see, we've said this often. Everywhere the law meets an unregenerate heart, a heart of flesh, it awakens resistance and rebellion. But listen, folks, we don't have an unregenerate heart. I've got a new heart. I, I, the Spirit of God now lives inside of us if you are born again. And what does the Spirit produce? Galatians chapter 5, it lists the fruit of the Spirit. What's the first thing it lists? The fruit of the Spirit is love. You see, the Spirit is producing in me the very thing I need to fulfill the law. 
Let me say that again. If you're a Christian, the Spirit is producing the very thing inside of you that you need in order to actually fulfill the, the law. Romans 3.31, Paul said this, Well then, if we emphasize faith, does this mean that we can forget about the law? Of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. That's crazy, right? There's a guy over there, and, and I was watching a documentary of the night over in Israel, and I just, I like to watch it, and I like to, uh, I've never been there, and I like to watch, you know, places and go see the Garden of Gethsemane, and I was watching some of the Jews and um, and just some of the things they do and, and how they obey these laws, and some of the very or, uh, Orthodox Jews, they'll just, I mean, they obey every little minute thing, and yet they don't have the one thing they need to really fulfill the law, and that's the Spirit of God producing love inside of them. But we do. Little old us in Walkala County Gentiles have the very thing we need to actually, for the first time, do what the law really requires. So let me ask the question again. Is there a law that Christians are to obey? Let's Paul, let Paul answer that. Romans 13, 8 through 10. This is still way out in our study, but we'll look ahead. Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now listen. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. Now watch what Paul says. Or if there's anything else you can come up with, any other commandment, any other rule you can come up with, are all summed up in this saying, namely... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Is, is, there, a, is there a speed limit sign that you and I have to follow as we go through life? Absolutely. That's it right there. Do no harm. Do no harm. Can I, can I eat this meat or not eat that meat? Paul says, man, that meat's nothing. What, how do you make the decision? Do no harm. Can I drink alcohol? Can I not drink alcohol? Paul says, do no harm. Do no harm. Can I do this? Can I do that? Paul says, do no harm. That's the overriding law that we have. That's it. Not a bunch of rules and regulations. You got to wear your dress so far. You got to have your knees covered. You got to have your elbows covered. Your hair's got to be here, this. None of that stuff. Do no harm. Do no harm to your neighbor because that is love that is the fulfillment let me say this let me read galatians five thirteen. i want to say one final thing he says for you were called to freedom brothers and only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another he said look you're free i i am for the first time i'm back on that highway and i'm free i am free but don't use your freedom to go 120 miles an hour just because you can. Do no harm. Dial it back a little bit. Be safe, right? Don't, you don't want to hurt anybody around you. You don't want to offend anybody around you, especially in the area of, of, of Christ and Christendom. Love one another. Through love, serve one another. Let me say one final thing. I wasn't going to bring this up, but I think I will. I want to make sure we understand what love is, okay? Love is not, it's not talking about uh, an erotic love or a romantic love. Love is a choice to put someone else ahead of yourself. That's all it is. It's a choice that you make every single day to put another person 
ahead of yourself. That's love. That's biblical love. A few weeks ago, Kathy didn't know I was going to tell this story. It, wasn't, it was like last week or two weeks ago. Kathy and I got sideways with each other. And um, now I told Henry, I, I told Henry this story. I said, now, if your first thought is what did you do, shame on you for thinking that. <laughs> I'm pretty convinced that it was entirely her fault. But let's just, it, but, but she thought it was entirely my fault. Anyway, so we get, we get angry with one another. Uh, we're not talking to each other. And um, I know that's hard for y'all to believe, but it's true. And uh, so uh, we, first of all, we, we didn't do what we should have done. We went to bed angry. Don't ever go to bed angry. Here's another one for you. You know why the Bible says don't go to bed angry? Because if you can stay angry for eight hours, you can stay angry for eight days. And if you can stay angry for eight days, you can stay angry for eight years. And one day you'll look back and say, I don't even know how it started. Don't, don't wait. Put it, put it to bed. Get, get rid of it. Because the longer it goes on, the harder it is to resolve. That's good biblical wisdom that I completely ignored. And so we went to bed and we got up next morning. And every morning I make Kathy coffee before she leaves for work. And I got up and I walked in there and I thought, I ain't making her no coffee. <laughs> why, why would I make her coffee? She needs to apologize to me. But you see, at that moment, at that moment, I, it's not a law. See, that's the thing. There's not a rule saying you got to make her coffee, make her coffee. No, there's a spirit inside of you that says, that's not who I am. I don't want to be vindictive. I don't want to do that. So I make her coffee, right? Now, we weren't all lovey-dovey. That, you know, I mean, that, it, we had to get past all that. But the point is, you make choices every single day, no matter what, to put that person ahead of yourself. That's love. That's love. You don't have to have, you know, I remember as a, as a kid growing up and it says, love your enemies, love your neighbors. I'm like, I don't even know them. How can I love somebody you don't know? You can. Because you can make a choice to put that person's welfare and feelings and other things ahead of your own. That's love. Even if you don't, even if you don't know them, that's biblical love. Love your neighbor. Love God. Love God's the same, right? I put him, even when I, even when I wonder where he is sometimes, I still put him first. You're my God. I love you. I'm putting you first. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's a choice that I get up and make every single day. And I'm sure as many of you do as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for Romans chapter 7. Thank you. I know we've, we've talked about the law now for a couple, three weeks. But God, there's just so much meat and so much depth here. Um, Father, If we because if we can understand it, we can understand this. It, it literally will set us free to live the life of the Spirit. And that's exactly what Paul is trying to get across to us. Father, I ask you to bless the rest of this time that we have together. Um, uh, just, uh, Lord, we love you. We thank you once again for having the ability to come in and study your word and, and, and just uh, fellowship with one another in, in freedom. What an honor and what a privilege and what a blessing it is that you've given us to do that in Jesus' name.